This is the Writer Who Reads podcast coming to you direct from New Orleans, Louisiana. Hi. Hello. This is Kate Austin, the writer who doesn't read enough. And this is Trapper Kitchen, the writer who doesn't write enough. And today, for our third episode. Our third episode. Three episodes. This is crazy. I can't get over that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> what happened? It's a mistake. I don't know. Um, but yeah, Trapper is going to kick off our new theme, which is... Unapologetic Living. Which is very different to last week's, or the last episode. <laughs> Secrets. Yeah, so we're, we're going for an opposite theme here. So yeah, do you want to start off by just telling us a little bit about your author? Yes, and I chose somebody who just who wasn't just unapologetic, was very, I wouldn't say in your face so much as extraordinarily eccentric and, and flamboyant and boisterous. Uh-huh. So I think she fits the theme well, and her name is Natalie Clifford Barney. Mm-hmm. She was born on October 31st, so Halloween, 1876. In Dayton, Ohio, and she was born into a very wealthy family. Her father's name was Albert Clifford Barney, and he was the son of a wealthy railway car manufacturer. Her mother, Alice Pike Barney, was an accomplished painter, and she also came from a wealthy family. The trouble is that the Barneys had a pretty tumultuous, gloomy relationship. Mm. Their marriage was not especially happy. Um, Barney's father was a heavy drinker and he became abusive when he got drunk so he wasn't jolly or productive he ended up hitting our mother Um, he was also unfaithful and was extremely preoccupied with keeping up appearances so they weren't just wealthy he was also very concerned with their place in the Dayton social scene Barney was described as an intelligent and rebellious child and she was educated at home by governesses until she was sent to attend a French boarding school founded by the famous feminist Marie Souvestre. The school, which was called Les Ruches, was known for encouraging independence in its students and teaching the girls to think for themselves, which was very unusual mm. for 19th century boarding schools. Definitely. Schools for girls. Barney's father died in 1902, and he left her a substantial inheritance that afforded her complete financial independence for the rest of her life, mm. her long life. That's nice. She settled in Paris, and in 1909, she moved into what would become her home for the next 60 years. Her address was 20 Rue Jacob in the Latin Quarter, which is Paris's oldest neighborhood. She held, she held a famous weekly salon and a salon, for anybody who doesn't know, is a gathering of intellectuals for the exchange and discussion of ideas. You looked at me when you said anyone who doesn't know. Well, I did it because we, this is all Because you're an idiot, Kate. Well, (laughs) that's not what I meant. We're holding our own little salon here. Oh, yes. Our lives are a salon. Oh, that's so so I glanced at you thinking, this is is our version. That was a great (laughs) uh, cover if you... Thank you, thank you, thank you. And she called her salon... Fridays, quote-unquote, her Mm -hmm. Friday. She hosted many prominent 20th century writers and thinkers, including Colette, who wrote Gigi, Uh um, Gertrude Stein, Isadora Duncan, who was, according to the theme of the the TV show Maud, Isadora Duncan was the first bra burner. Uh She also had Peggy Guggenheim and Auguste Rodin. The salon consisted of concerts, plays, dance performances, and literary readings, and Barney used the gatherings to mostly promote women's writing. In fact, she formed L'Académie des Femmes in 1927, and that was a women's writing group, and she formed it in response to 
l'Académie Française, which only admitted men. Oh. So she was like, we need a place for us to write. If you're not going to admit us, then we'll have our own. Uh-huh. Um, Barney was actually an inexhaustible writer herself. She was very prolific. She published five volumes of poetry in her lifetime, three volumes of epigrams, including Pensée d'une Amazone, mm-hmm. which was printed in 1920. She also produced two books of essays, one novel entitled The One Who is Legion, or A.D.'s Afterlife, and that was printed in 1930. And by the way, that was her only work published in English. Oh, wow. And she also wrote three memoirs, including Trait et Portrait, first printed in 1963. Okay, so going back to epigrams, um, for everyone who is not like really smart like us and who knows mm-hmm. what epigram is, can you please define that for like everyone else but me? <laughs> epigrams are short, witty sentences that quickly sum up a person or a situation. Oh, wow. Okay? And Barney actually composed her witticisms. Um, They say she did it with lightning speed in response to a comment made by someone else, like right in the moment. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. And she normally recorded her thoughts onto scraps of paper, and they eventually were compiled into books. Sounds like my grandmother. Exactly. Let me read you some of her epigrams, (laughs) because they're actually kind of of deep. And And I wasn't being, like, snobbish. I have no idea what an epigram was. And truly, um, I didn't know what an epigram was. I've heard of an epigram of veal in a cookbook once, but I've never heard of like... Trapper is one of the most incredible cooks that I... I'm sorry, chefs, that I that I know. She says that after preparing a delicious shrimp alfredo from scratch. Which almost caught fire and like ended in like sadness, but Trapper saved it with lemon juice. And it was delicious. It was. So it was a joint effort. <laughs> But here are some of her epigrams, okay. non-cuisine epigrams. So one of them is, youth is not a question of years. One is young or old from birth. So that's an epigram. Mm. And she also put, there are more evil ears than bad mouths. Oh. And eternity, M-dash, waste of time. So. I love her. <laughs> like, I haven't heard her work or anything. No. I love her. I mean, the you and I both know the kind of mind that can... Just shoot out a quip like that mm-hmm. is razor sharp. Oh, yeah. Could we do that? Like, beautiful and terrifying. Yeah. I think if we drank a little more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if we watched a little bit more Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, <laughs> we could really. All right. Okay. Uh, I, I, and I digress. Yes. <laughs> but speaking of Barney's work, mm-hmm. she rarely revised what she wrote. Because wow. she believed the first burst of inspiration produced the best work. And she believed editing was a complete waste of time. So Wow, it hurts my heart. I envy. Yeah. That was all. Because uh-huh. <laughs> you and I both know that once we have something written, it's like days, hours, You weeks. edit it. Then you send it to all oh your friends gosh. that you want to hear mm-hmm. from, you know? Oh. Exactly. On a personal level, Barney did not believe in monogamy, and she was openly lesbian. Woo! Mm-hmm. She said she knew she was a lesbian by the time she was 12. And when she addressed her sexuality, she said, My queerness is not a vice. It is not deliberate, and it harms no one. In the 1900s. Mm-hmm. Early, early 1900s. Early 1900s, exactly. Oh, wow. This is a time when, I mean, homosexuality was illegal in most, I mean, most of the Western Dangerous. World. I mean, she was in Paris, which <clears throat> might have been at the a- at, you know, better. At the age, when, in an age where lots of American expatriates were going to do art and stuff, and uh-huh. her community was accepting that. Uh-huh. But, I mean, we're talking in terms of, like, the broader social scheme. Mm-hmm. She was a very brave lady. Oh, yeah. Um, and her work addressed sexuality in a very big way. Her relationships were subject to you know, numerous writings by other people. 
Um, it was also, they were also a source of gossip mm-hmm. and speculation. So she was like a socialite in some ways. Oh my goodness, she was. Okay. Um, she, I mean, she was raised in a very wealthy family in the Midwest and then wound up being a very wealthy woman living in Paris. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you're talking about somebody who was a debutante and all this stuff. Yeah. So she was a social butterfly. Um, and she just wove her queerness into that in a way that if she were living in Dayton, I doubt she would have oh, God. done it in 1909. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some of her more notorious relationships were with arts patron Eveline Palmer, the courtesan Leanne Dupuis, poet René Vivien, and the painter Romain Brooks. One of her lovers, Lucie Delarue Martru, I hope I said that right, I'm trying, <laughs> described Barney as perverse, dissolute, self-centered, unfair, stubborn, sometimes miserly, a genuine rebel, ever ready to incite others to rebellion, capable of loving someone just as they are, even a thief. This is one of her lovers. Yes. That was a fire relationship. Oh, yeah. Well, she was not monogamous, and so the women she became involved with had to accept that this was not going to be something that would be exclusive. Yeah. And for, you know, a lot of people, that's tough to accept. Yeah. So. But she had to be pretty enigmatic. Oh, to dude. attract people, oh, like, gosh. okay, well, this person isn't going to ever love only not me, just, but... Right, and not just people, but, like, these are women who were prominent artists of their time mm-hmm. also. So I mean, they might have also, I guess, not believed in monogamy not. for that to work. Exactly. Yeah. And Barney was known as Lamazone, mm-hmm. which is the Amazon, mm-hmm. and she was given the nickname by one of her poet friends, Remy de Gourmont. After she made headlines for riding a horse astride instead of side saddle. Oh my. <laughs> so it was a very masculine thing to do. Uh-huh. Um, Barney was well in touch with evolving social attitudes. Mm-hmm. She was not somebody who kind of turned a blind eye to changing fashions and styles. In the 20s, she bobbed her hair, mm. which was very long and blonde. But she always wore long skirts. If you ever Google image her, though, she, I guess we can say cross-dressed, but like in a playful way. It wasn't like she was walking down the street in pants. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah. so weird to call it it's not cross-dressing. Because but at the, the time... I mean, because if you look at the outfit she's wearing, uh-huh. it's something that like, a lady would wear today. Uh-huh. It's like a blouse and pants. Yeah. But the way she styled herself is very romantic. Mm-hmm. Sort of man. I want to see that because I've... The, the photos that I saw of her so far, she's like in this like ethereal mm-hmm. dress. Yeah. and Yeah, it's, it's different than, to what I'm I think in hearing. the privacy of her salon, she probably was... A little more wild, but she presented very yeah Victorian and Edwardian and yeah. ladylike. Yeah, I, I'd want to see her in the context of her salon right. because that's probably her true self. Oh, and she lived forever. Mm-hmm. She died on February second, nineteen seventy-two, at age ninety-six. Wow. She saw a great deal of shift in her lifetime. Yeah. Um, and she actually composed her own prophetic epitaph, which reads, "I am this legendary being in which I will live again." Oh. And here's an interesting bit of information in terms uh-huh. of her legacy. Artist Judy Chicago um, included a plate and play setting for Barney in her famous feminist art installation, The Dinner Party. Uh-huh. So she thought Barney was interesting and important enough to include in that. And those plates, mm-hmm. I want to hear more about them. Like, what's the general concept the, behind them? You know, I, I would say the idea behind them is female sexuality because some of the plates are very... Um, vaginal I mm-hmm. guess and I think it's supposed to be about power and womanhood I've never seen it in person it's installed in Brooklyn right now oh really yeah wow I mean I think it would be interesting to see but the artist included women that she felt were important and who did something good I think it's 999 
uh-huh. women, so it's a lot. It includes people like Eleanor of Aquitaine, Georgia O'Keeffe, Sojourner Truth. Uh, yeah. So lots. That's great. Of interesting. Ladies. No, that's wonderful because you see so much like phallic imagery oh my gosh. And I <laughs> everywhere. Think that, I think that Chicago's installation was in response to that. Oh, really? I think so. Oh, yeah. that's great. Yeah, it's pretty. If you ever Google images and stuff, it's very interesting. I will, and we'll add that in our show notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Wonderful. So, following our show format, you have a few readings for us, right? I have two readings. Oh, wow. Poetry. So, we'll get into those readings, and then we'll talk a little bit about Barney and her works. Yes, I cannot wait. Yeah, me either. A Parisian Roof Garden in 1918 by Natalie Clifford Barney. As I must mount to feed those doves of ours... Perhaps you two will spend nocturnal hours upon our roof so high aloof, that from its terraced bowers we catch at clouds and draw bath from showers. Before the mood has made all pale the night, let's meet with flute and viol in supper light, a ewe lamb, minced sauce, a raisined bun, a melon riper than the melting sun. A flask of zeres that we've scarce begun, We'll try the lunar waltz, while floats afar upon the liquid night, night's nenuphar. Or else, with senses turned alike perchance, reclining love will make the heavens dance. And if the enemy from aerial cars drops death, we'll share it vibrant with the stars. I Built a Fire by Natalie Clifford Barney I built a fire to welcome her, and my voice sighed aloud her name. To be with her this night, I would have died. Upon the hours, all in vain, my tears, the rain, fall uselessly, unceasingly. The heavy door has closed again, again. I wait, yet know she will not brave the midnight. Give one more hour so utterly to live, wise and mild and shy, afraid as the heart of a child I know her heart to be, and mine, that naught will save, must love and live and crave and break unceasingly. Okay, I feel very intimidated by this poetry for a few reasons. Okay. First of all, great job on the reading. You I struggled. <laughs> no, you did not. I am the world's biggest non-poet. <laughs> See, we had a few practice sessions, but you've been sipping tea when I made you a perfect vodka spritzer. I'll have a drink of that now. Yeah, so it would have discuss. helped you loosen up, <laughs> but that's fine. Um, <laughs> mm. Yeah, I feel like there's something in the flow of her poetry that mm-hmm. I struggle with. And we talked about this when we were talking about Angelina Wilde Grimke in uh, episode two. How easily hers flowed. Yeah, hers <clears throat> flowed really well, right. but also we talked about how in our creative writing workshops, I was yeah. in a poetry workshop, how my professor kind of wanted me to shy away from rhyming. Right. And Natalie Clifford Barney loves to rhyme. But not... In a way in which we're comfortable. Yeah, exactly. It's not in a way that is... She breaks it up in a way. Yeah, simple and easy and sing-songy. Right. It's very difficult to catch on to. It is. Yeah. I mean, I'm sitting here looking. You've seen them now. Because I sent them to you just now. Mm -hmm. But she breaks up the phrases. And for me, as somebody who does not write poetry and has no interest in writing poetry, Mm -hmm. it's very hard to read that. Yeah. And... The rhyme, and I could not catch the cadence in either of them. I'm sure that they're meant to be much more beautiful than I read, but it's it's difficult. And when you have a sentence like the second one, I built a fire. When you have a sentence 
and it's broken up into three different lines. So I built a fire to welcome her, stop, and my voice side, stop, allowed her name, period, to be with her, stop. That's weird to me. Yeah, it's really confusing. How are you supposed to read something like that? I, I really don't know. But I mean, I guess it takes practice, and this is the kind of thing where I wish that I had a recording of the author actually yeah. reading reading how her poetry is meant to be read. And maybe if I were, if I had paid attention in English 2001, which yeah. I think was poetry, I would know how to suss out cadence a little better. Because when I'm reading this, I'm trying to read it like a phrase, when mm-hmm. really it's supposed to be a little more, I guess, lyric. Yeah, Miracle. we approach it very in a very like black and white way. It's either yeah. it's a phrase or it's like a super basic rhyming poem, and it doesn't work either way. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to. I I know this is the first thing I, that I brought up, but it was really hard for me to like sync with it and like try and understand. I understand what you're saying. What she's trying to express here, because you can look at the words and understand like the general intentions right. of the poem, but trying to honor what she the way she wants it to be expressed. There's like a lot, a lot that can be done when you're trying to, I don't know. Knowing she never, or really didn't edit much. Yeah, that too. I'm thinking these must have been real cursory. Da, 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 da. Like, you know, when you know when you get a burst of energy and your creativity, mm-hmm. you sit down and you pound it out. Yeah. And often, I mean, you know, it works. And it's yeah. good. And what am I, what am I trying to say? Like, oh, it's, it's good art. I mean, it's, it's, it's her work, you know? It is. And, and that kind of energy, like, really contributes to the tone. Right. You know, like that's usually where it translates. And I think that's where I'm getting a little bit mixed up with it. Like I don't, I don't know the general tone that she's trying to, or the voice that she's trying to like right. imbue with hey, this. Maybe it's, maybe it's meant to be frenetic. Maybe that's the general mm. feeling she's mm-hmm. trying to convey. Yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, with both, there's a general vibe of sexuality. It's overt. I would say it's overt. Yes. To, I build a fire. I mean, I build a fire to welcome her. She's writing this for a woman, mm-hmm. fire, has special sexual And it's very, yeah, it's very romantic yeah. also at the same time because I did, I took action, right. I built a fire, I want her to feel welcome and, and happy. That's want, very and thoughtful. That, yeah, and I built a fire is about, I guess, unrequited love. Mm-hmm. She's waiting, she hears the door slam and knows she's not coming, but I'm going to sit here and wait. She's afraid, the, the, the woman she's waiting for is afraid. And I'm going to sit here and be despondent. Yeah, because exactly. Because it can't come to pass. So I guess it's about unrequited love. And then the first one, a Parisian roof garden in 1918, the food and the dining elements. Uh, something about, I guess my mind is going to the movie Nine and a Half Weeks with Mickey Rourke and Kim Basinger. What year was that? 1980-something. Okay, so I wouldn't know anything about that because I'm a normal millennial. You would know the scene. (laughs) They're sitting in front of an open fridge. She's blindfolded, and he's, like, grabbing stuff and feeding her, and it's very Uh sensual. I don't know. So that's what's coming to mind when she's writing stuff like minced sauce, a raisin bun, a melon riper. I want to get into that because if you really, really drill into that, okay, um, let's meet with flute and viol and supper light. A ewe lamb, mint sauce, a raisin bun, mm-hmm. a melon riper than the melting sun. Right. That line right there, a melon riper than the melting sun. Ripeness. Oh, and melting and just that. Liquidus. That liquid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, it's, and, it's very sexual, especially if you're talking about a lesbian context. Well, and she also says a ewe lamb. Mm-hmm. Ewe is a female sheep. Oh. Interesting. I don't know how that would 
affect the taste of lamb if it was female, but I just think it's interesting that she's making a special note of that. Yeah, and no, it's, it's definitely there for a reason. Yes. And <laughs> this is, okay, we're going to get into this. We're really going to get it? into this. Mint sauce here. Okay. What's coming I just, the imagery there. It's just, oh, again, liquidist to, is the word of these of the day. Why don't you become explicit with what, because I am I think I grasp this your meaning. This is not that episode yet. I have not psyched myself up for okay. that episode yet. <laughs> maybe, a, maybe be a little more direct, just so I know what we're talking about. <laughs> Sex, right? Yeah, right. Th- that's what the imagery is here, right? Yeah, but you keep, you point out the minced sauce. A sauce. What do you think of when you think of a sauce in the context of sex? Of sex. Lubrication. Okay. Right. Okay. Yes. So we have that. So that's what you're getting at. And then we have a raisin bun. And okay, uh. <laughs> I haven't been eating carbs because it's the new year. But <laughs> I am like glorifying this image right now, like this beautiful, like perfectly toasted raised bun okay. that is slightly sweet With and luscious. In it. Yes. So at the same time, <laughs> my queer self is envisioning envisioning uh, a perfect woman's bottom woman's bottom okay and then a nice raisin bum <laughs> wow <Freudian. laughs> i know oops here i go yeah i just uh, so I don't you're know. so you're really seeing a lot of sexuality in food i and am that's what i thought too and then she says reclining love will make the heavens dance reclining love what I'm is thinking that? that's a horizontal position. Mm-hmm. Get it? I don't know if she's like the act of love. Which See, I, I interpreted that initially as um, almost re- declining, reclining love. Maybe you mean like the love is fading. Yeah. Well, and then it says, and if the enemy from aerial cars drops death, we'll share it vibrant with the stars. So maybe she is maybe alluding to a love that was once bright and burning and now is on its way down and they're kind of it's like living in the afterlife almost like yeah. drops death will share vibrant with the stars. stars and that goes back to her her disbelief and, in monogamy and you know this this food allegory starts at the very beginning when she says i must mount to feed those doves of ours mm. doves I mean, when you think of a dove you think of a wedding ceremony so mm-hmm. doves denote um something divine and lovely yes so maybe she's like, I'm having to come up here to feed our love. Yeah. Where are you? Are you not coming? And she goes, perhaps you too will spend nocturnal hours upon our roof, high aloof. Uh-huh. Maybe she feels like she's carrying the relationship. Like, I'm going to feed the doves. Uh-huh. Where are you? Maybe you'll come this Are these summer. separate roofs? As I must mount to feed these doves of ours, perhaps you too will spend nocturnal hours upon your roof. Your so roof. Oh, oh my because gosh. the doves are ours, and we're going to feed them. But, but you have roofs. a separate roof. I didn't totally glance over that. No. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Wow. And of course, well, like, <laughs> in this day and age, it's not 1918, but um, <laughs> mount, that word. Right. Mount. Am I being, like, a little bit too... <laughs> As I mount to suggestive? death those doves of ours, perhaps you two will spend nocturnal hours... Upon your roof, so high aloof. Is this like... Maybe this woman's all... She's trying to catch this lady. At the, no, at the same time, I'm person, thinking... Person, because she never says... Like, I yeah. keep saying lady because we know she's a lesbian, but... Oh, I feel like it's so obvious, and we'll look into that in a second. But, okay. like, I want to explore the possibility that this is, like, some kind of unrequited love. 
because just in the first few lines, as I mount to feed these, those doves of ours, perhaps you too will spend nocturnal hours upon your roof so high aloof. She's out there feeding this like these doves of love and stuff, and okay. she's like hoping that this person, who is obviously a woman, is out there too thinking of her feeding their like love doves. So you think you think it could be unrequited, like in the second poem. I think it could be maybe, you think it's like a long distance relationship? I don't even think they, it's a relationship. I think this is like okay. the, the, the phase of uh, courtship almost. That okay. like is like, ooh, does she like me? I like her. Right. I hope that she's thinking about me. What is she thinking about? I want her to think, think about me and us and, you know, that whole stage that of That makes sense because she's got a really, she kind of is like, this is really light. It's not anything heavy. Let's meet with a flute and viol and a light supper. Mm-hmm. Nothing to scare you. You know, let's get to know each other. You know, it's very, it's not like, let us sit and stare into each other's eyes. Yeah. It's like, let's meet and let's have some fun and let's see. <laughs> I love how one second we're like, all this food yeah. is just like pure hot sex. I think and then the, the next second we're like, oh, it's just a light dinner. <laughs> But, you know, I think that they can, those two analyses can go together. Yeah, I think so, I think too. she's like, I want to eat. I want to dine. I want to consume. But come on, it's not that big a deal. Like, you know, I, it's got a double meaning. For her, it means something. But it's also like, come. Yeah, here. like luring her in. Yeah. And there's a lot of illusion here that I, I do not <laughs> immediately understand. Okay. Um, just the, the lines of flask of Zeres. Yeah, I guess that's a type of alcohol. Okay, I wasn't sure. And then we'll try the lunar waltz, which is very romantic sounding. And I don't know if that's allusion to something else because it's in quotations. Lunar waltz. Right. Maybe it's not capitalized. Maybe it is in the poem. I'm not sure. Well, float so far. It becomes very ethereal and very light. Like you said, it is, it is a fantasy. I think that's the mm-hmm. theme here. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, it goes to the second one, too. Mm-hmm. Second poem, I second Built a Fire. Second poem, I Built a Fire, too, because while the, the fantasy is a little more easier to divine in the first one, in the second one you get the idea, because this is an unrequited love, that she's been nursing this dream of being with someone, mm-hmm. and it's not coming to pass, at least not tonight. And building a fire, too, um, that's domestic. Mm-hmm. You do that. You do things like that for someone you care about. Yeah. Um, it's also fire is something that burns and consumes. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that she's building a fire for someone, hoping they'll come, and then they don't. And then she's, you know, yeah. crestfallen. You know, one thing I loved so much was the the personification of her voice and my voice side. Right. It's almost repetitive in a way, but it's super just, it, it, it conveys her, Lack of her feeling. Yeah, yeah exactly. my voice side. Mm-hmm. I, I was disconnected. This love is so primal yeah. and so real for me that I almost don't have any control. She talks about the woman's heart, or the, her lover, afraid as the heart of a child I know her heart to be. But then, and mine, that naught will save, must love and live and crave and break unceasingly. So the other woman's heart is afraid and her heart is breaking. Mm-hmm. <gasps> Wow, that says a lot about just lesbianism in this early 1900s era. Like, perhaps she's (laughs) in love with someone who is just like, this is scary, this is frightening, I will be a social pariah, Uh, this isn't safe for me, and she's just this woman who's living out loud, um, and living unapologetically, and she's like, please, come on, be with me, I I want you, and it's just, it's not working. Wow. 
Great takeaway. Wow, I know. This is this is really great for a poem that we just like couldn't really Did connect you? with. Right. <laughs> and and now looking at them both, even when I first read them, I was like, uh, I can sense they're both love poems mm-hmm. now. Yeah. I feel that they're full of love or longing, desire, yeah. passion, sexuality. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, I really only gave her other poems just a glance. Yeah. But her work is very languid and also you know her writing style is very oomph i write it and i don't look at it again until it's done yeah but it's really you get this feeling of like somebody i don't even know how to phrase it somebody who is frantic frenetic bursts of energy and then like like it's all or nothing yeah and maybe that has to do with her relationships with people um, the fact that she was with them and then with somebody you know what i mean yeah stable. A, a steady stream of different relationships yes yes yeah. Well, she's definitely interesting and for, for me, somebody who is not overly fond of poetry and who has trouble parsing it. It was interesting to dive into her. No, work. definitely. Like I at first I did not have a good impression and I yes. want I want to be very honest and upfront about that, but as we talked about it more and right. like read it again and again, I was like there's so much here to dissect <laughs> and so much that I I don't even know that I still haven't understood. It's one of those poems that or two of those poems that you can go back to. Yes. And, and be like, wow, the the complexities of trying to navigate lesbian relationships oh, yeah. at this time. Because you think, wow, she was really passionate about, you know, just everything, her whole life. She just wanted to live this really, what is the word? Sincere. Authentic. She wanted to live this really authentic life. Yeah. And you, you don't consider things like, oh, maybe other people might be a little bit more hesitant. You know? It's, yeah. I don't know. Exactly. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of her and I, I need to read more of her I work. think your exact words when I finished reading were, this is a rich lady writing poetry for fun. You know what I, my first thought was that, and this is, it could be completely wrong and weird, but I feel like if you're rich and white at this time, you might have a little bit more freedom to okay. be in a lesbian and be out. So that's why those were my first words. Ah, I yeah. see. <laughs> I thought you were like... Bored, rich lady, <laughs> scrawling on a no. notepad. No, no, because I know that everyone that was at her salon probably wasn't filthy rich, yeah. but they probably benefited from her richness. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, there's. it doesn't matter if you do things that society might deem as risque mm-hmm. if you're rich. It's like, I don't need you. I don't need your money. Right. I am filthy rich, and I'm a lesbian, and this is my work. Yeah. You're less at the mercy of the mess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can do what you want. So that that was why that was my first. Poem. I see. Well, yes. no, uh, I didn't understand at first, but I get it. And yeah, her work definitely reflects a brazenness that maybe the average person, somebody who was maybe living in Dayton, Ohio, at the same time oh she's living my. in Paris. Yes, maybe they wouldn't have, you know, expressed themselves quite as emphatically as she did. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad that we got to talk about her, and she's certainly somebody who lived unapologetically mm-hmm. and helped. And, wanted other people to live unapologetically. Yeah, she created this community, basically, exactly. where that could be done. Oh, wonderful. And I know. Good choice. Thank you. And I would say this before I started doing research based on our topic. I had never heard of Natalie Clifford Barney. I didn't know who she was. And the more I read about her, the more fascinating she became to me. She was very uh, expressive of her lesbianness, queerness. Yeah. Um, because she didn't want to be bothered with men. She was... A man wanted, when she was young, she was 17, she knew she was gay, 
And there was a young man who pursued her, and he was a great friend, and he even said, look. And she told him, uh, I'm gay. I like women. And he said, we can just have a marriage of convenience. I love you that well. Wow. We don't even have to do anything physical. And she was like, you know what? This is more of a, hinder, a pesterer, um, pestering experience, a hindrance, than it is something that I would want to get involved with. So that's why she, I think in part she lived so boldly because think, she just didn't yeah. want to be bothered with these you know, flirtatious men. men. She's yeah. like, look, I don't want to be bothered. I am 1,000% gay yes. and just don't, like, leave me alone. Right. Like, for that to be, like, a part of why <laughs> why she was so out, yes. like, that's beautiful. It's incredibly yeah. interesting. And, um, she has a, she had a sister named uh-huh. Laura whom I did not research, but I'd be interested to delve into her family. I mean, her mother was a painter and uh-huh. was very expressive, too. So yeah. I just, I'm, I always am interested when you get somebody like this to look back and say, how did they get to be this way? Yeah, and did you have to sever ties in order to live your authentic life? Her parents were cognizant of her lesbian. Really? Because her first, the first thing she had print, she had published, her father was still alive. And if my, when I was doing research, they were shocked. He was, I mean, they were scandalized uh-huh. to a certain degree, but it wasn't to a point where they disowned her. Yeah. Because she amassed a great fortune after her father's death. But it was, I mean, they, I think, were aware. That's how out loud she was. Yeah. It wasn't like, hmm, I'll go to Paris and be a lesbian and nobody in Dayton will ever know that I'm with a yeah. woman. And the fact that she didn't risk her inheritance. She was like, I'm going to publish this. My father's still alive. I could definitely be disowned and she did it. And I think mm. the school, the boarding school she went to, mm-hmm. Had a deep, imp- made a deep and lasting impression on her. Yeah. And um, Suvestre, who founded that boarding school, founded another boarding school in London that Eleanor Roosevelt attended. Oh wow! So Suvestre's concept of women should be able to think for themselves, mm-hmm. should not have to lean on men for uh, thoughts and ideas and beliefs. I think it had a huge impact. I mean, they helped to shape some yes. really great women. Eleanor Roosevelt has uh, impacted generations of American women yeah. throughout time. Yeah. You know? So I'm glad that we got to talk about her. I think that if we were able to take the time and we were enlightened enough, we could say, let's analyze the look of these poems. You know how we were saying it's broken up, but yeah. you and I are. No, that's definitely something that I would urge everyone to go take yeah. a look at just how her poems look, how, how the lines are broken. Yes. And, and try and navigate <laughs> it takes some navigation the format yeah it's it's not it's not the easiest thing but i think if we had worked at it a little bit longer it would have been a lot easier you did such a good job with the reading because you. i struggled looking at that i, mean, I struggled too i feel like i didn't draw any breaths while i was reading it because i didn't. was so nervous I <laughs> but it was fun and yeah. we talked about it when you read angelina weld grimke's work yes in one of our previous episodes Poetry to me is like eating, I don't know, Limburger <laughs> cheese. I don't do it a lot, but when I do, I appreciate the complexity of it. That was the most ridiculous Thank comparison. You, I do not know what Limburger cheese tastes like, but <laughs> I understand. Thank you. And I'm glad that you, know, you as a queer woman mm. were able to approach this from an even place of Depth. Trust me, I know what unrequited queer love feels like. Don't we all? Don't we all? (laughs) So yeah, this is very entertaining for me in particular. Yes, and I can't wait to hear, I mean, I can't even pronounce your chosen author's name for our next episode. Me either. (laughs) This will be really fun. I can't wait. And, um... (laughs) You know, the history involved in that is going to really entice me. Ooh, it's fiery. So, yes, great choice. This was the first episode 
of our little unapologetic living mm -hmm. um, theme. So this was incredible. Excellent choice. I really it enjoyed it. And, you know, we probably should let everybody know that we're sitting in New Orleans and it's 30 degrees outside. Somehow. Somehow. <laughs> and we're sitting in here just being creative and drinking wine and just having fun. Too much wine. So let's see how this next episode goes. I can't wait. Me either. So this has been the third episode of the Writer Who Eats podcast. I'm your host, Kate Austin. I'm Trapper Kinchin. Thanks for joining us as we try to read a little more, write a little better, and, and explore, explore the human, human condition, condition together. together. Heather. <laughs>